It is not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters, but vigilant and insomniatic rationality that drives us to embrace the void. Virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 188 of Embrace the Void, where we sometimes get a bit delusional. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're getting to better know some philosophers and maybe, just maybe, getting to better know ourselves along the way. So, let's get determined. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Gil Morion, an adjunct at DuPaul and co-host of the What's Left of Philosophy podcast. Gil, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi. Hi, Aaron. Hi, the void. It's nice to be here with you today. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. I'm really excited. I've been chatting with you and your cohorts from the What's Left of Philosophy podcast, which I think is a really great show, um, and I'm excited to have all y'all on at various points uh, over the next little while. And you are our first at, at bat. So um, I guess responsibilities fall to you a little bit to um, talk about the show some. Before we do that, why don't you let folks know sort of what's your background in philosophy? What are your philosophical interests that you're bringing to the table here? Sure. So you and I have spoken a little bit, and I think we're going to talk a bit about Deleuze today. Um, mm-hmm. And in an interview at some point, Deleuze was asked about his own personal life, and he said, well, the lives of philosophers are not interesting. And he kind of just dismissed the question and moved on. <laughs> That's uh, a very good philosopher answer. I like that. Yeah, it, it is. I think he's probably right. But anyway, here's a little bit of my biography. <laughs> um, oh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, from, uh, I'm from New Jersey originally, and I did my undergraduate uh, degree at Villanova, um, where I... Uh, where I studied philosophy and, and never didn't think I was going to study philosophy. I thought I was going to do like political science and go to law school or something like that. Um, but then I found that I had questions that the political science people weren't interested in and didn't want to answer and which the philosophy people did want to ask and answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up uh, working on uh, Deleuze there. Actually, I read uh, his and Felix Guattari's book, Anti-Oedipus, and wrote a, a, a senior thesis on it. And then Is anybody I, pro Oedipus? That seems like a, a pretty straightforward <laughs> position to take. <laughs> well, you know, he had a hard he had a hard time. You know, you, you gotta you gotta feel for the guy. Is this like a sympathetic uh, like? Uh, or should, we shouldn't even be sympathetic for him. What's the? Uh... 
<laughs> the the line in anti Oedipus is so it's a critique of of uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, and so the 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 basic That's fair. one of the yeah it is fair. <laughs> one of the basic gestures of the book is to say that um, a, too much of Freudian psychoanalysis, which I think they are, it's a sympathetic critique. They think psychoanalysis is important, and they'd like us to get it right. Um, and I think that one of the things that psychoanalysis goes wrong on is thinking too much about like family and familial relations. And so like reducing all sorts of like neurotic and schizophrenic and paranoiac conditions back to like, what's your relationship with your dad and his penis seems like way too <laughs> fast for them. So that's anti, that's anti Oedipus. They want to say okay. things like, you know, if there are these sort of psychological conditions that people have, like we have to take that seriously and try to figure out how to work on that suffering. Uh, but that a lot of that's going to turn out to 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 be more related to uh, social conditions and material conditions. Um, and so, like, how do we make psychoanalysis like a workable thing in like a materialist context where we're thinking about things like capitalism and politics? Um, so that's the that's the book in a nutshell. It's a wild ride. Uh, it's very ridiculous. Uh, and I was like under its sway for a long time. Uh, as you as you saw, we you looked at a couple of pieces that I've read. I've been sort of trying to get out from under Deleuze mm -hmm. for, for a while now. So then I went to grad school at DePaul here in Chicago, um, where I ended up working mostly on early modern philosophy. Um, and I got there through Deleuze in a weird way because he writes about them as well. And so kind of initially mm -hmm. interested in his sort of intellectual influences, I found that like I actually really enjoyed and wanted to work directly on uh, these people from the 16 and 1700s. And, and can uh, you name Spinoza's in particular? Yeah, yeah Spin Spinoza's the most important for mm -hmm. him and for me. I identify as a Spinozist more readily than like anything else, um, but also thinkers like Leibniz, uh, like David Hume, um, mm -hmm. all of whom like kind of he brings together. Uh, in an interesting way, and which I ended up just kind of working on for myself. I ended up writing uh, my like dissertation on those thinkers and the way in which I think they already have a kind of idea of the unconscious kind of operative in their work, uh, where like mm -hmm. they're kind of interestingly sensitive to like the ways in which like the habits that we have in in our thinking or how we perceive things or like what's involved in our desire. Like a lot of that's not. Uh, immediately conscious to us and uh, a lot mm -hmm. of it's also not even very accessible if we like try to reflect on it or like bring it to ourselves and so I, I that, that's right. the sort of thing that I'm fascinated by for political reasons because I'm very as you know from from the show uh, and and sort of some mm -hmm. of my own writings like I'm I'm a committed leftist and I think that like ideology is a real problem and so thinking about how there are these sort of unconscious dimensions to our beliefs and desires uh, is an important problem that I think we need to figure out. It's not enough just to tell someone what's wrong, right? Like there's mm -hmm. there's more that mm -hmm. goes into our determination and and how we live and what we do uh, than just like what we consciously understand or think. Uh -huh. And so like I'm really like attracted to these sorts of things. So that's the that's that's my intellectual trajectory, yeah. I guess, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, it's really great, and there's a lot of I think overlap with things that I'm. Uh, very interested in. I also very much enjoy Spinoza, though I don't feel like I'm as much of a as as well versed in him. But like the things I understand about him, what little that is, is very enjoyable to me. Um, and I'm also a committed leftist. I feel like even though I'm also a liberal, and I understand that there's problems with that. Um, sure. But I I 
at the same time have, you know, over the course of this show, we have to varying degrees tried to do bits of like history of philosophy, you know, better, better know a philosopher kinds of segments. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've talked about Spinoza and we didn't do a full episode. I don't think on Spinoza, but what I haven't talked about hardly at all is Deleuze. So I'm really interested to hear this connection, but let's, let's slow things down like a bunch here. What do you mean when you say you're a Spinozan? What are the, what do you feel like are the key concepts in play there for that identification? Nice. So Spinoza is like one of the great rationalists from like the enlightenment period of like, you know, modern Western philosophy. And so he's a like he's as rationalist as you can get, I think. Like Leibniz might be the only other like mm-hmm. real contender for the title. Um, and so Leibniz like, just steals contention from other people, doesn't he? Though I know he's so good at it. He's so wily, actually. Leibniz is very funny. You know, there's you great read, stories. Yeah, I'm really curious. Have you read the book Courtier and the Heretic? Courtier and the Heretic. Yeah, that's a fun book. It's a lot of fun. Do you feel like that fun. actually is accurate based on your sort of more like, you know, academic experience with these folks? I think I think it broadly is. I mean, so the book is unfair. I think it's meaner to Leibniz than it needs to be. You <laughs> I know? think that's and, perfectly fair, but sure. But I think but I think that's actually fine. I mean, it's a very yeah. good it's a very good story. It's really readable. It's a great narrative. And it's true that like, yeah, Leibniz was like a real uh he was a real one. <laughs> he would. Like, I do. Yeah, I highly recommend the book to anyone. Non. It's a very fun book. Yeah, it's very readable, and they're they're both fascinating characters. They are, and and so like I mean, there are stories from Leibniz's like hit, like life that are recounted in that book that are like definitely true. Like so, for instance, like uh, he was he had a, a position. He was appointed at like Hanover, where he was mm-hmm. like uh like the like court philosopher, I guess. And so, like, he was getting paid by this, like, you know, this family of royals who said, okay, look, we will fund and support you, but you need to do us this one thing, right? Like, whatever else you work on, we want you to, like, figure out how to prove that we have legitimate claim to this throne. And he was like, sure. Oh, yeah, I will absolutely do that. And then so he just, like you know, goes to Paris, the intellectual center of the world. And it's like, yeah, I got to I got to dig into these archives to try to prove that you guys are, are right. And like, just never did it, never even did it at all. And so they're like, <laughs> great letters, like from from Hanover to Leibniz, where they're like, hey, uh, just checking in, like, we sent you a bunch of money last month. Uh, what's going on with this, uh, this uh, genealogy? And he's like, Oh, man, I'm so close to a breakthrough, just send me a little more money, and just strung them along for years. Yep. Which is, you know, I think that's that a is goal. definitely the vibe you get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, no, he definitely gives gives you the vibe of someone who just wants to grift off of the upper class so that he can. Do he was stuff. he was he was grifting well. He did it really. I was just talking to my mm-hmm. co-host from the pod. It was a very very dear friend of mine, Owen Glenn Williams, and and he, we were laughing about how uh, sort of like feudalist like contemporary social relations feel, and it's like, man, you know, I mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd take a patron. I'd actually be fine if I had like a patron, you know, I'd feel, yeah, I'd feel less, less. Yeah, exactly. I'd love to be an in-house philosopher and, uh, you know, whatever, sell myself out. I'm doing it already in various ways. I think so. they call that think tanks these days. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. Um, so, okay. So Spinoza is a rationalist. He's very strongly committed to like a very strong version of the principle of sufficient reason, uh, which says that everything that happens happens for a reason. But like you can hear that in like two different ways. 
And so I'm I'm going to try right. to like exp- I'm trying to try to unpack this stuff in in hopefully accessible ordinary language. Um, but like a distinction that philosophers sometimes make is between efficient causes and final causes. And final causes are like purposes or aims or ends or like you know why you do something. And Spinoza's got a really sort mm-hmm. of um, uh, critical relationship. He thinks that those basically aren't real. He thinks that those don't exist in like a strong sense. So when he says mm-hmm. everything happens for a reason, he means it in the sense of like, well, the conditions right now push things in the direction of where they'll be in a moment from now. And that's not for any reason mm-hmm. or purpose in the sense of like, it's all it, it's all happening for a reason. It's not a story, right? Things just kind of unfold uh, for him, according to like a necessity that's very sort of naturalistic. And so like he, right. Yeah. And so like, he's going to say that everything that happens happens naturally. Everything is natural. Um, he's sometimes described as like a naturalist for this reason, which I, I like because it gives us, I think really helpful ethical, um, uh, an eth- a nice ethical sort of angle you know, you can't point. Usually, when someone says that something's unnatural, they mean to say that like it shouldn't be, or that like they're using it to like castigate someone like moralistically, mm-hmm. like oh, that's an unnatural way to behave. And Spinoza says no. Everything that everyone does is always fully natural, always. There's no outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So everything's de- like fully determined. Everything is like caused, and there are reasons why everything happens the way that it does. Um, we might not always have access to those reasons. We might not always understand them. Um, but he never allows us to 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 posit that like there's anything like in principle mysterious or unintelligible. And so that's like like the mm-hmm. first thing that I'd say is really important for him. And then the second thing, which I'm like obsessed with is that he identifies understanding and joy and power. He thinks that these are all like the same thing, that when I enjoy something, it's because I'm acting and I'm acting because I understand. Um, and so these things like are bound together in like a knot. And so like, you know, the, the, his main work, his book is called The Ethics. And then, you know, if you pick it up, that mm-hmm. might be confusing to you because book one is of God, where he's just talking about God's nature. And then book two is like it's a, a long list. Of, it's a weird book. And then like part two is like all the stuff you can't understand because our minds are weird and finite. And then book three is where you start. I think you're underselling about, it because it's all it's all written as geometric proofs. It's written yes, in more geometric proof language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, but like this is this goes to like the the sort of like why I said he's like an arch rationalist, right? Like you you look at something, you mm-hmm. think about something like like hatred or confusion or sadness, and Spinoza says like that has determinate causes. We can come to understand that. I can talk about feelings in an objective, rational, and neutral way. You know, nothing nothing's outside of this mm-hmm. sort of rationalist grasp. At the same time, he's like very clear that like we are mostly guided not by reason but like by how we feel and how we feel is you know i can you know there's like a sort of level split that you start to to get when you think in spinoza's terms like you know i can understand why i'm sad i can understand the causes of my sadness Mm -hmm. um and i can understand that i shouldn't be sad and still be sad and act on the basis of my sadness you know so like he's a rationalist in the sense that he thinks the world is 
like follows a, a kind of rules or you know determinate rationalist function but not in the sense that like we as individuals are necessarily rational or likely to be rational or effective at being rational he thinks we're usually very bad at being rational and that mm -hmm. like most of us aren't rational most of the time and he thinks mm -hmm. that it would be better if we were right and so like you know when i understand stuff rationally like that that helps me i feel better I, I i'm more capable of doing things of, of affecting others in a positive way um you know he says mm -hmm. things like people who are guided by reason like have more in common than people who are torn by their feelings and he wants to sort of give us a way to 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 come together in 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 understanding and he thinks that that's like a joyful process of, of becoming active and these are all themes that i think the least does we can like, do that even up. though we're determined and that we can do that even though we're determined right and so like i've i've, I've uh, right. uh yeah this is like a a commitment that that i have which i know that you share in some way i've read a little bit of your stuff on free will he's mm -hmm. a real he's a strong critic of this idea of free will um and he's a he's a like a, mm -hmm. a hard determinist in this way which upsets a lot of people and it's like a hard position to as you've written about and i think a really helpful way to like internalize like how do we like come to grips with this idea. Can I really like onboard the idea that I'm determined? That's weird. Um, but Spinoza mm -hmm. says things like, you know, what we're conscious of is doing stuff. And we're usually not conscious or not aware of the causes that determine us. And so there's like a gap in my sort of experience between mm -hmm. like what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And he thinks that like in that gap, we like, you know, we posit a free will. Um, but you know, in interestingly, though, that's to say that, like, what we do is unintelligible, right? Like, if I'm not actually mm -hmm. caused, if there are no causes for why I do what I do, then, like, I'm literally doing stuff for no reason. And then what is that? Like, wh why why would I do one thing rather than another if there, if there are no causes, if there are no reasons? And so he wants to say, actually, it's just the opposite, right? Like, there are always reasons why you do the things you do. They might not be, like, good, rational mm -hmm. Uh, reasons but there are always reasons why you act in the way that you do and so freedom for him becomes something like understanding how you're determined right not just like willing to mm -hmm. do whatever you spontaneously feel like like that's nothing um but like understanding how and why you are the way you are right that this is like his sort of like way to sort of save yeah. the idea of freedom even in and through being fully determined and i think probably after Nagel Spinoza is the next most impactful on my views about um, free will. I had a really great time in undergrad getting to do a program where I got to like do intensive studies with professors. And one of them, the metaphysics semester was with a guy named Jim Cargyle, who is like mm -hmm. a, a thoroughgoing classical Platonist and like a hardcore. Excellent brilliant yeah. brilliant like and, and like was the guy who taught me that it was okay to be like i have no idea what this says and he said <laughs> that in the context of reading spinoza's ethics where we were like working right. through it and i would never have gotten through it without him but the parts of it especially the parts where he explains his view of god as being in direct conflict with the personalized kind of god yes. that that mm -hmm. this view that gets him excommunicated essentially that like god right. is also completely determined and like yes. not free um i that that was so appealing to me right as like a young atheist. yeah 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so like his idea of God is that like God just is the world. God just is nature. It's mm -hmm. this it's this whole thing that we are just a part of. So like he gets called a pantheist, right? We are all just little we're all just little pieces of God moving around. Mm -hmm. um, God's not separate from the world. God's not a creator. And this is creation. None of that. Um, and then he says things that like, I think actually work, but they're like kind of unintuitive, right? Like he says that uh, everything happens, happens according to the divine nature. Like that's to say that God mm -hmm. is free. Nothing's causing God to be the way that it is. But that means that everything just follows necessarily from this nature. Um, and again, like this is, I think, like, you know, mm. uh, tied into these sort of like ethical, ethical considerations, like you know, you can't say that like someone's someone's desires, right? Like this stuff comes up a lot in terms of like, uh, like sexuality and gender. Like you can't point to anyone's desire and say that it's unnatural. Like that's divine too, right? Like people have the right to mm -hmm. do whatever is in their power and whatever they want because they're parts of God. <laughs> and like, a, it's a, it's a very liberating right. perspective, but like a very like unintuitive one. You said he got uh, excommunicate, which was true. He was like 24 years old, um, and he was living in the in the in the Hague in the Netherlands. And um, he, mm -hmm. it was it's an interesting it's an interesting story because like excommunication, it turns out was very like uh, a rather common practice in his community. So he's part of this community of like uh, themselves, kind of exiled Jews from uh, Portugal. They, these Muranos, they were called. Mm -hmm. And they sort of set up shop in the Netherlands, which was like the most tolerant place in Europe at the time. But there was a kind of understanding uh, that the community had <laughs> the where they were like, anti-Semitic. <laughs> yes, the least anti-Semitic part of Europe in the mid 1600s. Uh, right. <laughs> uh -huh. The bar was low to clear, I guess we should say. Right. But um, sure. But there was sure. sort of an understanding where they were like, you know, we'll we'll tolerate you and you can have your community and live the way you want. But also like, you know, keep your people in check. We don't want people rocking the boat. And Spinoza, by the time he was like 20, was rocking the boat very hard. And so like, you know, they excommunicated mm -hmm. people on a fairly regular basis, but it was usually a slap on the wrist. You know, you'd be like excommunicated because you stepped out of line or you like cheated on your wife or something. Or maybe you like, you know, did some like, you know, uh, you did a bad business deal. And they'd be like, hey, cut that out. You're excommunicated. Pay a fine. Make it a public mm -hmm. apology and we'll bring you back into the fold. And that is not what they did to Spinoza, who they were like, no, God's going to smite your name out from under heaven and no one can ever talk to you again. <laughs> he was 24. All right, so, you are exiled. <laughs> you are done. So he's like double exiled, right? Exiled from an exiled community for his beliefs. Um, but he stuck to them um, quite mm -hmm, consistently. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that... Uh, as he was determined uh, to do. As he had to do, right? As he, as he must have done. So right. like... So yeah, so we've got this sort of critique of free will, this full determinism, this rationalism, but then also this kind of like focus on joy mm -hmm. uh, and this idea that understanding is a joyful act and one that we ought to pursue uh, as something that that brings us together and that shows us the ways in which we have commonalities. Um, he, he, he thinks mm -hmm. that like, you know, we human beings have so much in common, so much more in common than we have differences. And so like, you know, it's it's inadequate. It's um, like our, our bad understandings that like that lead us to think that like we have insurmountable differences that we could never reconcile or come to understand each other. And this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a nice pivot to Deleuze, whose whole thing is difference. He's mm -hmm. trying to like make like difference, like the principle or the heart of his metaphysics. And then, you know, but then he goes to Spinoza 
um, and takes so much from him, which is kind of kind of interesting. Um, but but for Spinoza, I mean, there is like, a kind of cheerful I'm... determinism to Spinoza. There absolutely is. Yes, there absolutely is. You know, he says very funny things too in some of the letters. He's like, "Look, if you throw a, if if rocks could talk, right? And I threw a rock through the air while it was <laughs> flying through the air, it would be like I chose to be in this arc. Like I chose this trajectory." <laughs> and he's like, "We're just like those rocks, you know." Like, <laughs> it's almost like a Zen cone kind of thing at that point. It sort of is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he thinks that that's uh and he just thinks that that's okay. Like he he's not bothered by it. Um, I mean, one, like, I've found it, like, personally helpful in difficult situations to sort of, like, uh, adopt a Spinozist stance. And, like, this is maybe why I'm a Spinozist mm -hmm. more than anything else. Um, and, I mean, I am other things. I'm a Marxist. I'm a feminist. I'm so on and so forth. Uh, but, like, very few other thinkers that I've ever encountered have, like, helped me practically, like, orient myself in the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of situations wherein, mm -hmm. for instance, like someone hurts me or does me wrong. And Spinoza says, look, there's two ways you can approach that situation. You can say they have free will and chose to do a thing that hurts you for no reason. And if you think like that, mm -hmm. you can very easily hate that person. And he says, or alternatively, mm -hmm. you can say, no, they were determined. There were reasons why they did what they did. You can come to understand why they felt like they had to act like that. And in that understanding, you recognize a common humanity, a sort of common nature between you and them. And some of the sadness starts to go away. It's very hard to hate someone if you think they had to do what they did. And so, like you said, there's a bit of like mm -hmm. a, a Zen vibe, but I, I don't think it's like, um, uh, I, I don't think it's uh, uh, purely about sort of like reconciling yourself with fate. It's just sort of like, no, like people, people act for reasons and we should try to understand them instead of assuming that they're unintelligible, that people are so different from you that you could never understand why they act the way they do. Um, I find it very, very useful yeah. sort of like in, in, in my actual everyday life. I agree. It's yeah, the moral luck stuff has been consistently Ooh. very helpful for me, I think, in dealing with the kinds of things that you're describing. So let's let's fold Deleuze into this too now. Um, so who is who is Deleuze? What is he to Spinoza and Spinoza to him? So Gilles Deleuze is um, probably the mo like one of the three most important ph French philosophers from the 20th century, alongside like you know uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. Mm -hmm. uh, Deleuze is born in 1925. Uh, he teaches at um uh university of paris uh he writes like way too many books most of which are like monographs on individual thinkers <laughs> uh -huh. i mean like you know he's got books on uh let me see if i can do this in order um hume nietzsche kant two books on spinoza he's got a book on foucault a book on leibniz a book on kafka um a book on proust and then he's also got like standalone works like Difference and Repetition and The Logic of Sense, which he writes at the end of the 1960s. And then he's got these collaborative books that he writes with Guattari, like I mentioned before, Anti-Oedipus, uh, but then A Thousand Plateaus. Um, so, and then What is Philosophy is like the last thing he writes uh, toward the end of his life in the 1990s uh, when he gets very sick. He's a lifelong smoker um, and he ended up uh, like they had to take out one of his lungs and he was on a ventilator and he actually uh, jumped out of a window in 1995, took his own life. Um, 
you know, basically like, you know, his oh, wow. commitment to like, yeah, it's intense, but, and he, and he says, and he, you know, there, but it's sort of consistent in its way. Like, you know, he think he, he describes things like that, like, you know, the life that he had was no longer like livable in a joy, joyful way. Right. And so like, this was mm-hmm. maybe a last act of agency or maybe like a refusal to have to live under conditions of, uh, suffering. But so, so what's his deal? Um, he's, he's, like I said, he's trying to like put difference at the center of, of like metaphysics or of ontology. He wants to say that like everything actually is most fundamentally different and, and, and we've misunderstood the nature of difference. And so his main text, Difference and Repetition, is trying to like think about difference um, in as clear and like direct a way as possible. And in this, he like enlists in the aid of, mm-hmm. you know, this weird, like I said, this panoply of like thinkers where he's like pulling resources from very eclectically. Um, but he thinks like, <clears throat> and I mentioned this in some of the stuff that you looked at, like, you know, for him, like the big enemy is Hegel. He thinks that Hegel is uh, a real problem for mm-hmm. us for a couple of reasons. One of them is he he just doesn't buy teleology he doesn't buy final causes he doesn't think things happen for a reason in that sort of bad sense like so he shares that with spinoza Mm -hmm. and and he also thinks that like we misunderstand difference if we think that its most profound form is contradiction which is like a pretty okay formula Hmm. for like what hegel's up to right he thinks that like things contradict each other and that's how progression or development moves um and so this says like no like this idea that it's progression, that it's like moving in like a progressive direction. I don't buy that. And I also don't buy that. Like it's most, (laughs) most fundamentally contradiction. Right. And so what happens when we start to try Mm -hmm. to think about difference in sort of positive terms, instead of like negative contradiction terms. Um, And I think most of his work is sort of centered around that and it gets very complicated and he's very annoying. um, And he writes like, you know, he uses different language, like in every book, um which is why like you know he's like one of these thinkers who um like you you almost need to learn his vocabulary to talk about him which i think is a problem i think that's actually a bad thing um Mm -hmm. because like you know it it just makes it inaccessible would you would you list him as a uh postmodernist yeah i think probably um he's probably like yeah so those three thinkers i mentioned right like uh deleuze Foucault and Derrida are like usually our prime suspects for like big time postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not always sure I know what that means. Um, I mean, like a lot of the caricatures that go around, I think are very unhelpful. Like, I don't think any of them think that there isn't truth. Uh, you know, they're, they mm-hmm. do think that, you know, <laughs> some things are true and others are not. It's just that, uh, you know, they've, they want to sort of complicate the story a little bit. They want to say that things have historical conditions like, you know, maybe there aren't like time. Most things don't fall under the category of like timeless eternal truths, maybe. Um, and mm-hmm. then like things like, you know, discourse and language and like how we've come to understand things and frame them matters a lot for what we count as true and what we believe and how we act and so on and so forth. I think Deleuze does sort of fall into this category. Um, but he's like, again, like uh, uh, he's he's committed to a lot of like, I think kind of rationalist principles that you know, might be surprising for someone who just approaches postmodernism and thinks like, oh, these are like the people who think that like, you know, anything goes and, you know, there is no truth or everything's relevant. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's true of any of them really. Maybe like, I don't know, Baudrillard on his worst day or something, you know, 
But even then, I'd want right. to qualify it. He's a, he's a postmodernist in the way that Kant is a is a postmodernist, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot recently. Actually, I've been reading a lot of Kant and about Kant. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> oh no, I know, but like uh, you know, who was I reading? Oh, I was reading. I was reading Adorno's lectures on Kant, and uh, he just says like you know, like Kant wants to save objectivity. He wants to save objective truth, but he thinks that the only way we can do that is through the subject. You know, and so like. You know, if you think that like once we ground our understanding on the subject that like everything becomes subjective and so relative, then like then, yeah, I guess Kant's a postmodernist. But that's a but, you know, he, but he's trying to save truth. He wants to figure out how to like hold, fi find and retrieve and defend like universal true statements. Um, I think that a lot of these thinkers are like that. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> so so that's the sort of like metaphysical side. Yeah. But then he 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 writes these books with uh, Guattari, and um, they are both in their weird way sort of Marxists, and and they want to talk about things like capitalism, and so I think I think if he was left to his own devices, he'd he'd have been very sort of like only indirectly like or tangentially touch on politics stuff, and Guattari is like a really like militant mm -hmm. political thinker who like pushed him to <laughs> to sort of bring uh -huh. his his acumen and his apparatus to bear on political problems. And they produce a lot of really fruitful work that was like very influential, um, even like, you know, practically speaking, a lot of people have taken up their work and done very interesting things with it. Um, and they, uh, you know, they, they, they want something like a, liber a liberation. They, they, they're liberatory thinkers. Um, they, they'd like us to get out of these, basically these like bad double binds and they find like capitalism and like the state apparatus to be like, you know, repressive and oppressive. And they, you know, they'd like us to sort of try to find ways out of that or to get away from, from these sort of traps that we find ourselves caught in, you know, here in the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm -hmm. So let's tie Deleuze then back to Spinoza. You wrote a paper where you talked about Deleuze's interpretation of Spinoza on the kind of determinism stuff that we laid yeah. out there in the first half where do you feel like he's getting spinoza i think I, my impression is you feel like he's getting spinoza wrong in a way that is harmful in terms of the kind of fatalism stuff um, yeah so how, how does that work how do you see that working out so um in in like writing this paper and in even in communicating with you about it and the language that you just used there is is the language that i would like to use and i'm not sure that i've got this fully worked out yet um Okay. Because I want to say that I am a determinist and that Spinoza is a determinist and I want that not to be fatalism. So like mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to think determinism without fatalism. And I think that that's an right. I think that correctly characterizes Spinoza. And I think what I started to notice when I was reading uh, Deleuze's uh, first book on Spinoza, the expressionism book, was that especially when he started talking about individuals and like what individuals are, um, uh, that it started to seem more fatalistic uh, than than I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, one thing that's possible here is that, you know, Spinoza has been charged with fatalism, like, ever since he was tw 20 years old, <laughs> you know, and and uh, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it might be the, it actually might be the case that, like, I'm only now seeing it <laughs> after like 10 years of reading him. And I'm like, oh, no, maybe it is fatalism. But I but I'm not convinced that that's true. Um, so, so in particular, the problem uh -huh. is something like, um, uh, what, what am, what am I, what are you, we're individuals where what in 
Spinoza's sort of like technical vocabulary is we're finite modes, we're modes of God or of substance or of nature. Um, and then like there okay. is there is an essence that 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 we have that I that I am that I'm expressing. Um, and the way mm -hmm. the way Deleuze talks about it, I think he makes a couple of moves that I'm uncomfortable with. And one of them is to say that like, well, what what is that essence? That, that I am or that you are and he says it's a degree of power like a like and he means it like a like a uh, like a like a magnitude like a quantum like there's a certain amount of power and that's okay. what you essentially are and then the thing that's weird about that to my mind is that Spinoza is always talking about how you know our powers increase and decrease like you know in some in a like I said before like mm -hmm. in a joyful encounter which I have with someone like with you right now, I'm having a joyful encounter. Like mm -hmm. I'm understanding something more than I did before. My powers to think and to act are increasing because of like this thing between us. This is like a form of joy and love truly. Right. right? And they so like clear 9,000, if we keep at this, I feel like if we keep it up, like who knows, baby sky's the limit. Right. Um, uh, but yeah. Right. Uh, so, so I think that makes sense. Right. The, and like, you know, when, when something sad happens or when, you know, someone, someone negatively affects me, my powers are decreased. Like I'm less capable. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm less able to do things like this is, I think the picture that Spinoza gives us. So then I think it's weird mm -hmm. to say, as Deleuze does, that like, oh, actually, essentially what I am is like a degree of power, because then it makes it sound like when I experience a joy or sadness and I think that my power is increasing or decreasing, that I just must be wrong about that, that like that's not really happening, uh -huh. <clears throat> that like essentially my powers don't my my degree of power doesn't ever change. And so that seems wrong to me. Um, mm -hmm. And like the, the weird, like political mm -hmm. and ethical upshot and like why I do think it's like a harmful distortion is that we end up having to say things like, look, some people just won't come to understand because their power is mm -hmm. at a certain mm -hmm. level. And like, you know, what can you do? Nothing to do. And I think Spinoza instead would have us be like, right. you know, keep trying to understand, help others. You know, like there's like a, a, mm -hmm. a, a sort of, you know, people always accuse determinists of being like pessimistic or quietists, you know, and, mm -hmm. and everyone who buys some kind of deterministic picture has to figure out how they get out of that. And I think mm -hmm. that Spinoza's absolutely not a quietist and he's not a defeatist or like, you know, a, a pessimist. He thinks that like, that, you know, we can, we can do better and we can like, you know, come to understand more. And so when, you say that like, you know, people have a degree of power and their power is how much they can understand. And like that, that degree is set in stone from all time to eternity. Uh, I start to get nervous. Right? It, it starts to sound to me like we're going to say mm -hmm. something like, uh, like aristocratic and Deleuze is sometimes accused of being like an aristocrat in the sense that like, yeah, some people are philosophers and then there's a bunch of dummies. And I'm like, I hate that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's a bad, that's a bad, <laughs> a bad, a bad thought and not a, not a helpful one. Certainly, you know, I understand a lot more. I think the fatalism about values when it comes to determinism, the feeling of like, how do we motivate? How do we care about things? Um, like when it comes to determinism as, you know, making it so that nothing changes, that just seems like such a weird misunderstanding of like, 
a system that gives you a, the ability to change your world in radically right. new ways, right? Like yeah. in a predeterministic view, your options are what? Sacrifice some chickens and hope that like the gods are in favor <laughs> of that. But like, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm being very ungenerous, but like, you know, the, the whole point of determinism is to like unpack the levers that actually exist yes. there so that yes. you can then grab them and yank them about and yes. such, right? Absolutely. So like, yeah. I don't understand that kind of fatalism. I understand people being like, well, this means that everything I do is pointless. I don't think it is, but no, like I, I, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to that as a concern that arises as an existential crisis that arises rather than the like, oh, well, what you're saying is everybody is born exactly one kind of way and couldn't possibly be changed. That just right. seems very weird. Yeah, it seems very weird and especially weird um, because, like I said, like, you know, Deleuze is the great philosopher of difference and of differentiation. And like mm -hmm. he thinks that, like, you know, what what? Like I think in a in a if we were to like really pithily in a maxim like what what's his like philosophy in one sentence it's like to be is to differ to like mm -hmm. to be in this process of differing or becoming and I'm like yeah that sounds right it's complicated it's weird we're gonna have to try to figure out like how identity works then and what it means to be a subject mm -hmm. when like all things are sort of in process and in flux but like that that there's a plausibility i could buy that and then when i read his book on spinoza and he's like well of course like everyone's just like one degree of power from to and from eternity i'm like that doesn't even seem compatible with your other commitments let alone being like a good reading of spinoza right it's like a weird moment that i'm a little mm -hmm. bit perturbed by um but uh because yeah again like i i agree with you entirely yeah and to be as generous as possible i think to this kind of determinist concern i guess i i see it as like maybe what you could say is when you unearth those levers you realize they don't do much or like there mm. isn't a lot of actual control that you can have over the situation like right that the determinant factors are well beyond your control in that kind of way so maybe we want to say that but there I, i'm like uh, yes, to some extent, I think that's true. Like, I think our, our like social and material conditions make it very hard to produce change, but not impossible. It seems like but not impossible, right? right? Yeah, I mean, like history is replete with uh, examples of like you know, s shocking. Like you would never have guessed like eruptions of freedom and liberation, right? Like mm -hmm. from like the mm -hmm. most the most restrictive conditions. Sometimes there are these like you know outbursts where like suddenly people take control of themselves and their situations and it's like you know what what are we supposed to learn from that do you look at that and go like well i guess like you know that was determined too and there's nothing interesting about it and i'm like no i think that's actually very interesting <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. could we understand could we understand how that happened why that happened like you said like finding right. the levers and figuring out how to pull them is i think the real upshot of being like a determinist and a rationalist here it's not like you know some 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 people read Spinoza as like a sort of like stoic, right? Where it's like you just mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. resign your like I said, resign yourself to fate. And I just don't I just don't think that that's like what he's after. I don't think that's his ethos. I think he wants to say that there are reasons why everything happens, and we should figure those out and try to like produce more joy, and like you know come together in, mm -hmm. in this sort of communal way. Um, and one of the things that I think is really great about Spinoza, which I also think Toulouse picks up on. He's very helpful to compare with like uh, Hobbes for and for like most people when they think about power, like most people think mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. power is like a zero sum game, right? Where like if I gain power in a situation, it's at someone else's expense. And like I only have more power if someone else is less powerful. 
And Spinoza thinks that like, yeah, that mm -hmm. sometimes is the case, but very often um, power has got this mutual and reinforcing character where like, if you and I come together in a certain mm -hmm. way, like we could be more powerful together without it being at anyone's expense. And so like, you know, forming mm -hmm. sort of political organizations, entering into like uh, uh, groups with people, you know, even when you like, you know, love someone in a very sort of basic way, like these are situations where like everyone's power is increasing. Like joy can be produced and multiplied mm -hmm. in a sort of like, you know, in a runaway sort of like positive feedback loop kind of style. Um, and like, that's, that's what he wants. And that's, I think what we want and what we should all want, you know? Okay, great. So this bridges into the second paper that we were going to talk about, which may force you to now immediately contradict yourself. Um, because it seems like you were arguing <laughs> in that paper that like, uh, it, it can be we have to be careful not to read too much of that joy stuff into mm -hmm. spinoza and that like mm -hmm. the negativity side yeah. uh, matters and this is where i think you bring some hegel some back into it as well do you want to like maybe just lay out your thesis statement of of this uh negativity in spinoza spinoza and politics paper um, yeah go from there for sure so like there's a tendency to uh that, that that comes from like the middle of the 20th century uh and it's people like deleuze but also like at some Italian thinkers like um, uh, Antonio Negri, mm -hmm. um, who wants to, they turn to Spinoza because they don't want, to, they don't want Hegel. Like I said before, like Deleuze thinks that like Hegel's the bad guy, right? Uh -huh. And like, they're like, we're Nietzscheans, we're Spinozists. Like we don't need, we don't need none of that contradiction. We don't need none of that negativity. Like everything's positive, everything's affirmative. And they think that they find that in Spinoza. And in a way mm -hmm. I want to agree with them. Like, I do think that that there's something true to the critique that, like, actually, you know, difference is more interesting than just contradiction and that things are more complicated than that. And there's positivities all over the place. And and again, like, I think that Spinoza wants us to um, to be joyful and to produce joy and to come to understand each other. However, um, I think that, like, they kind of, you know, the pendulum swings a little too far, maybe in some of the ways that they read him and then some of the ways they talk about things like politics um, where it's like, yeah, like, you know, revolutionary militancy just like is joyful. And, and it's like, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. good and fun. Actually, it's really It's great. It's the best. You should take a hit off this militancy. Um, and then like, you know, we'll form a politics together in like a sort of like, you know, utopian joyful state mm -hmm. where we all just have it, we're all vibing, you know, and having a great time. And I think that like, you know, it's again, it's certainly true that like there are moments in politics, like when you're doing political work that are joyful in this sense. Um, and that, that it's like, you know, it is mm -hmm. affirmative and affirming to like, you know, enter into groups with people for the purposes of doing something that makes people's lives better. Like, that's great. But also like, I think Spinoza, like I said before, like, and, and as you, as you rightly noted, right? Like he's not a rationalist in the sense that like, we're all guided by reason he thinks mostly we're confused and sad and that most people mm -hmm. are going to be stuck in their sadnesses a lot of the time and you know our, ourselves included like you know the 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 smartest among us the best among us um like still are sad about things and confused and unclear a lot of the time it's sort of like our mm -hmm. common condition he think he says things like like this is the common condition of human beings is sort of not to understand, mm -hmm. to be determined in ways that escape them and to like think that people are so different that they could never come together. And so like, 
when that's true about sort of our common condition, like we shouldn't delude ourselves, I think, into believing that like, you know, politics is this like, you know, great party that like actually like, no, there's going to be hard work. It's going to be difficult. It's going to involve mm -hmm. like struggles. It'll be sad. Not everyone's going to get on your team. You're going to have to like struggle against some people. And that's always sad. I mean, like, you know, if I cash this out in like Marxist terms and say something like, um, you know, the, the proletariat should, should, should form together as one, rise up and seize the means of production from the bourgeoisie who have been uh, yoking us to like the, the, the slavery of wage labor for so long. Like, yeah, that's great. Um, that will also still require like destroying capitalists. And there's something sad about destruction, no matter what, right? Even when it's like someone who you think is like a real enemy, there's something sad about needing to destroy, mm -hmm. you know? And it turns out that mm -hmm. like, it's, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't think of any politics. And I think Spinoza would, would push in this direction. I don't think there's a version of, of political society that doesn't have this sort of conflictual character at its core where like, you know, people have incompatible desires. And when that's true, mm -hmm. well, only some of those desires are going to get satisfied friends, you know, and then we have hard decisions mm -hmm. to make. And we can think here about like weird sort of um, paradoxes about like, you know, uh, democracy, right? Like, you know, we all agree to like go with majority mm -hmm. rule, but like, that's also to say that we're in principle going to ignore or, um, or, or condemn the minority. Like that's a weird place to land, you know, if we want something like a just mm -hmm. society. And I think that Spinoza just like, you know, he sees that and he thinks that there's not a version of, you know, the best, the best version of human beings living together is still human beings living together. And they're not always going to understand each other and they're going to have incompatible right. desires. And that's maybe an ineradicable feature of, of, of our, of our, of our situation, of our condition. So, so the sort of thesis yep. of the paper is something like, yeah, all right, yes, okay, sure, sure, sure. Like, you know, politics can be joyful, but let's not lose sight of that. Let's not like start, let's not, let's not get too utopian about it, right? Like, I think that there are maybe some limits mm -hmm. to, you know, how, how harmonious a society we might even be able to build, even in theory, you know? And when he starts writing about mm -hmm. politics, mm -hmm. like in, in the political treatise, like one of the first things Spinoza says is like, Oh my God, I've read all of these political thinkers and like all they're doing is just like dreaming up a golden age. And, and I think that it's not helpful, you know, to like, to, to talk about, mm -hmm. as he says, like a human nature that doesn't exist anywhere. And then they condemn real people for not living up to this weird ideal that they themselves came up with. He's like, wouldn't it be better instead to be like, yeah, people are sad. It's just like, you know, thunderstorms follow from the nature of our climate that like, conflict arises naturally from our our sort of natures as human beings we're going to need to deal with that um and to hopefully deal with that in a way that doesn't cause more pain but you know minimizes it sure and you know doesn't need to repress as much as possible and like allows people to live according to their own desires as far as is possible but it's not clear to me that like even in theory mm -hmm. that that could mean like that everybody always gets what they want and has a good time always you know what i mean yeah, no, I think it's really interesting, actually, that you compared him to Hobbes. I hadn't made that connection. Mm. Hobbes is probably, at this point, the only conservative philosopher who I enjoy. Um, and I think it's Hobbes because of, 
Hobbs is great, and like great. even when he's wrong, he's great. He's he's, he's so like, and fun. Like the consistency and the like commitment to um his very pessimistic view of human nature is is a little refreshing i think right in a kind of voidy kind of way um and i do think you're right that like spinoza <laughs> has a kind of hard-nosedness to him um in his personality that like even while he's rebelling against a lot of traditional orthodoxy he still comes off as like a conservative kind of character and maybe it's that like in courtier and the heretic they play that up a lot with his you know being a kind of monkish guy right. as compared to um leibniz who's this foppish uh yeah. courtier um so <laughs> yeah. lavish lavish lifestyle and meanwhile spinoza's like living in an attic and eating gruel you know yeah and it, i mean it also reminded me i've been rereading for philosophers in space um the three body problem which is part one of the like dark um dark woods trilogy which is like a sci-fi about amongst other things that the chinese revolution and like scientific realism and stuff like that uh, you know it's a story about how hard it is to know people and to know mm. truth and the struggles i feel like that come along with that kind of stuff and so i guess i'm curious on y'all's show on um and we haven't barely even gotten to talk we're almost out of time about um left of philosophy you know a lot of it is very leftist kind of politics where do you feel like you fall on issues around like revolutionary praxis in terms of you know it, it's not going to necessarily be joyful is it necessarily going to be violent how do you feel like we should talk about the transitional process that needs to happen to get us where we're going. Yeah. Um, I'm like a very bad uh, activist. I'm uh, I've tried and failed to like do much of actual like praxis in my own life and feel like singularly on uh ill-equipped to like tell people what to do or how to do anything. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's an honest answer. So, yeah, no, it, it's true. I mean, like, I, I have these leftist commitments insofar as, like, I think that, like, a much better world than this one is possible and within our grasp. Um, and, and like, they're the, the things that we, like, I sometimes, I sometimes think that, like, like, part of why I end up, you know, in, in this voidy space sometimes, to use your, to use your, your language here, is that, like, I sometimes look around and I'm just like, this, like, it would be so simple for us to just have such a better world, right? Like the things that we need are so, so straightforward and it's not that complicated, you know, like, mm -hmm. like we, we could, we could just house every homeless person. We could just feed everyone who's hungry. You know, we could, we could build an energy economy that like isn't climate catastrophe, like in the making, you know, these mm -hmm. things like, not only are they like not hard to understand or imagine, but like they'd be easy to do, I think. And this is part of what like, right. like I find I find so like, you know, debilitating sometimes. Like I was I was I was in this void space earlier today. It's like, wh why not? Like, why? Why do we have to have it like this? Where like, you know, suffering is built into so much of the world that we live in. Um, and and I can't find any mm -hmm. like any justification for it. Um, other than that, like, you know, a handful of like obscenely rich ghouls get to live like fucking gods <laughs> while the rest of us suffer. And, and, and I hate it and I hate it and I hate them. Um, so, okay. And, you and asked, a lot like, of a people question. get to experience. 
Well, no, and I think like another thing we can add in there that you know it's not just the billionaires. A lot of people get to experience relative value, right? In the sense yeah. of like, I get to position myself in relation to somebody who's worse off than me. Yeah, I get to absolutely. work towards being like somebody who's better off than me. It creates this, and like you know, you get the meritocracy stuff on top of that. So, like, yeah. I do think there are a lot of those systems but I, I do agree with you like i was actually th i was in a very voidy place earlier when i was walking our new puppy to and from the dog park and like on the way to the dog park is like broken glass everywhere and like right. the dog park is full of people who haven't like picked up their poop from their dogs and you you know your dog is going to eat that and then he's going to get sick and it's like and you just you, you spend the whole time being like why why and like i keep trying to remind myself right the reason there's a bunch of trash is because they're not doing good work in terms of putting trash cans making them accessible for people yeah right like there are there are structural it's not just that human like, like you were saying earlier right? it's <laughs> yeah, not yeah, just yeah. people radically choosing to be terrible but it yeah. is it is so hard not to get sucked into a depression when you're just like for the hundredth time trying to keep your dog from eating something they shouldn't of course yeah of course no, so like, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that like, um, like, you know, you asked before, like the question that you asked uh, just like mm -hmm. a moment ago was like, okay, what do you, what should people do? Like, I think that like, that one of the things- <laughs> Lead us, Gil. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, please don't, don't do that. God, I know. Here, don't here take is like revolutionary a advice from a podcaster. Here, here, here is a true thing. Like left to my own devices, all I would do is just speculative metaphysics. Like that's all that I want to do. I just want to like reflect on the nature of God and reality and think about like cognition and whatever. But instead, mm -hmm. because I live under like racist patriarchal capitalism, I got to think about all this other stuff all the time, which I think is horrible and depressing. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like, I'm not trying to be in charge of anything, right? Like I don't want to lead a political mm -hmm. movement. I don't want to be in charge of uh, any social order whatsoever. Like I don't, I don't have any interest, but I think that like one thing you can do, like you were asking, like, I don't know, look at where you work, depending on like, you know, where you work. Most people, most people's conditions of labor are like, you know, exploitative and like coming to an awareness of that and helping the people who you work with see the way in which that's true is like a small thing that could start, you know, start making changes become possible in a progressive or, or, or forward moving mm -hmm. sense. I mean, like today we had the really terrible news come through that like the uh, union vote in Bessemer, uh, Georgia, uh, Bessemer, Alabama, uh, amongst like these Amazon workers like failed and failed very hard. Um, and it's, you know, mm. I get that mm -hmm. it's difficult to like, and, and I, I made a, I tweeted about it before and it was kind of tongue in cheek and, and um, usually don't, Please uh, also don't take my tweet seriously. I'm, I'm usually joking. Um, but like a lot of people were very despairing in response to that. And like, I get that. I do. But also like, you know, the, the game's rigged. Um, and like, you know, you have to sort of expect mm -hmm. that there will be defeats and setbacks. But like, you know, you got, got to keep moving forward. Help people sort of try to come to understand uh, that like... Like, you know, I think about conspiracy theories quite a bit and like often mm, like there's the part of part <laughs> of why they're I know. Yeah. Yeah. And part of why they're like so deeply frustrating a lot of the time is that like there's usually at least like a kernel of truth in them, which like people are led to buy into mm -hmm. something on the basis of on the basis of some belief that they have that does touch reality in some way. And usually that first moment mm -hmm. in, in, in that first thing that they're thinking uh, is I am powerless and I don't like it. 
why don't I have power? Mm-hmm. You know, and then some yeah. narrative can be constructed that explains their powerlessness. Oh, it's not because of whatever. It's not because of uh, a, a rigged democratic system or capitalist exploitation. It's the flat earth. They're keeping the flat earth from you. Or like, you know, or it's like the deep it's state. It's the Jews. Let's be clear. It's the flat it's earth the, inside, it's of always the inside of the Jews. It's always anti-Semitism. It's the flat earth. <laughs> it's always anti-Semitism, yeah. right? Like that's the er form mm-hmm, of conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. And it's, I mean, I, and, 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 and it's because it's in the, in the imaginary got this like tangential, but like unclear relationship to mm-hmm. capital, right? Um, and so mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you, what you want to do is like, right, find absolutely. people where they find people where they are and say, look, I get it. You know, you're, you're pow- you feel powerless, but it's not the Jews fault, <laughs> right? Like there is, it's, it's these, these, <laughs> you know, these structures. And so like, you know, can, can I affirm, can I affirm something about what it is that you think and show you why the explanatory framework that you've adopted for whatever reason is actually not doing as much explaining work as you think it is, right? It's actually not helping you account for your situation. It's explaining away your powerlessness instead of making it clear to you and showing you, again, those levers of your determination that you can pull once you sort of come to grips with them, you know? Um, Yeah. Okay, but to be fair, was Deleuze Jewish? I don't think Deleuze was Jewish. Was he? I don't know if I he was think, either. I don't, I don't, I don't Spinoza think he was, was Jewish, but I don't. Spinoza was Jewish. It would have been, really it, been really funny if we spent an hour talking about two Jewish philosophers and then we're like, but it's really not about the Jews, guys. It's not it's really about not the, the Jews. Jews. It's not, actually. It's really not. No, it's about the no, Frankfurt that, School and about neo-Marxist. No, it's okay. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, that, okay, that that one I have to give the, the reactionaries. That's just true. Cultural uh, Marxism is a plot to destroy uh, Western values uh, through the academy, of which I'm a leading member, of course. Uh, I'd like to, to fair, destroy Western the... values deserve to be pretty much Western burned values to the ground aren't that... and sown with salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like sometimes like, uh, 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 sometimes I like see like what people take like American values to be on. I'm like, wow, I don't know. I don't know, dude. Like, I like, I like letting people have what they like sometimes, and sometimes I'm like, no, no, this all has to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so we're we're pretty much at time, and I got to hit you up with the enlightening round. But let me. All right, let's do it. Let me just ask before I do that, just real quick: Are there other texts besides things like Courtier and the Heretic that you would recommend for non-philosophy experts if they wanted to get some, you know, more information about Deleuze and and these folks we talked about? So this is trickier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of the work that's been written about him has been very scholarly and dense and rather inaccessible. Um, I think that his second book on Spinoza actually is a very nice place to start for him and also serves as a nice introduction to Spinoza. Uh, the second chapter in it is like on the difference between like ethics and morals. Like he thinks that like morality Mm -hmm. conceived in the sense of like you know judging people as good and bad like is actually an unhelpful thing but that we still can do ethics which is something like figuring out Mm -hmm. what works for me and for you and like again this sort of question of like how can we how can we like relate to each other in ways that increase our power um that's a really nice place to start for both Mm -hmm. of them um on the sort of like uh, uh, more popular side there's a really great book by steven nadler called the best of all possible worlds um, that sort of like Korean the Heretic tells this sort of story of these intersecting lives 
of Spinoza and Leibniz and um, uh, and Nicholas Malebranche actually is another interesting thinker we've not touched on at all. Um, mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. it's again it's very narrative and sort of like you know it gives you some of the philosophical content, but I think in a fairly accessible way. Uh, and and it's a fun read because they were all such weirdos and lived such interesting lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That's some good stuff to get for folks who want to dive a little deeper. All right, so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things, and you are going to tell me are these things real or not real. Those are your only okay. choices. You don't get to define what the word real means. You don't get to hedge nope. halfway through. Uh, are you ready? I'm, I'm prepared to judge reality. Okay, great. So first of all, just to check, is anything real? Yes. All right. So let's find out what's real. So the external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality? Real. Rights? Real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Real. Mm. Society. Real. Money. Real. Unfortunately. Num <laughs> <laughs> Numbers. Um, real. Fictional characters. Real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Yeah, definitely real. <laughs> Science. Real. Oh, natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. <laughs> Is that the uh, one? Is that the one that hangs wow. you? Wow. Hmm. <laughs> Shit. Re <sighs> Wow. I'm going to say real. Wow, that one caught me real. You were so confident the whole way through. I and that know. One, uh, and then the, the, you the, got the, me the, to time, and I don't actually know about time. That one's <laughs> weird. I, I, I said this at some point on Twitter, and I mean it. Like, Time is one of those things where like, I understand what most thinkers are trying to say when i when i like take them seriously and dive into it and whenever whenever philosophers talk about time i i immediately have no idea what the hell they're talking about That's fair. i don't i just don't i just don't know what time is time confuses me isn't it one of those uh crucial categories for understanding uh, something something i'm vaguely i remember my Kant. i i, I could do Kant. it's fine yeah, it's uh, along with space, one of the uh, a priori forms of intuition. Unfortunately. Right, exactly. It makes, Whatever that is. Makes, makes sensible representations possible, so they say. I don't know what that means either. <laughs> we did so good on not front-loading all of the language. We have to get it all out here. Yeah, so I thought I'd squeeze a little needless technical <laughs> jargon in at the end for absolutely no reason. <laughs> uh, thanks, Gil. This has been a lot of fun. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you in the podcast and whatnot? Sure. Um, our podcast is called What's Left of Philosophy. We put out episodes every two weeks. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at GD Morejon, my last name. 
um, the podcasts uh, available in like basically any streaming platform. And if you'd like, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Aaron. This was great. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, Skeptical Wonder. And thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Aaron objectively has the same morality as baby-eating turtles. Space turtles, excuse me. Accurate. Uh, Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much for your support. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. It really does matter. Follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just four bucks a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, right here, right now, remember, you are the void and the void is you.